on this episode of Imagine a World. I think um, optimism is very much associated with a certain kind of, to be crude stereotyping here, a certain kind of Silicon Valley libertarianism. And I think that has given optimism a bad name among certain people because it's a very monolithic vision. But I would like to see a kind of more pluralistic visions of how AI could make the world a better place or how the future could be better, better than the present. Welcome to Imagine a World, a mini-series from the Future of Life Institute. This podcast is based on a contest we ran to gather ideas from around the world about what a more positive future might look like in 2045. We hope the diverse ideas you're about to hear will spark discussions and maybe even collaborations. But you should know that the ideas in this podcast are not to be taken as FLI endorsed positions. And now, over to our host, Guillaume Reason. Welcome to the Imagine a World podcast by the Future of Life Institute. I'm your host, Guillaume Reason. In this episode, we'll be exploring a world called Core Central, which was a second place winner of FLI's world building contest. In this world, humanity becomes unified under a single world government, supported by a fantastical artificial intelligence network known as the Core System. This system is spread fractally along societal lines, with components representing different countries and communities and even smaller ones interacting with individuals. Its global reach forms a kind of social exoskeleton that helps to support all manner of human flourishing. The core structure is centralized and monolithic, but also contains a huge range of diverse and semi-independent components. This forms a paradoxical network of intelligence that really challenges our notions of agency and individuality. Other changes in this world, such as increased lifespans, empathy-building technologies, and personalized education, are also richly explored. There's a deep sense of enduring complexity throughout. Thorny issues of justice and well-being remain thorny despite technological and economic progress. This is a world unified despite, or maybe thanks to, its engagement with all manner of difficult conversations between individuals and communities. This world was created by a team of seven hailing from the University of Cambridge in England. They were our largest winning team with a wide range of expertise spanning ethics, cognitive science, policy, and infrastructure. Our first guests today are John Burden and Henry Shevlin, who are both on the more philosophical side of things. Later in the episode, we also get to hear from Laura Mani, who studies the effective communication of existential risks. Her work is so relevant to this competition, so make sure you stick around for that. Their four other team members were Bibis Abralik, Jessica Bland, Clarissa Rios-Rojas, and Catherine Richards. So hi, John and Henry. Thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, likewise. So you're one of the biggest teams that we had in our uh, top 10. There's seven of you. How did all seven of these folks come together to work on this submission together? Well, so we are coming from two distinct centers, um, uh, like sibling centers, the Leverhulme Center, the Future of Intelligence, um, the Center of the Study of Existential Risk, both of which are based in the same building in Cambridge and have, have lots of overlapping projects. But I think that meant there was a big pool of potential researchers to draw on. So that was the first part. Yeah, I think uh, quite a few of us were perhaps interested in uh, maybe entering individually or in smaller groups, but we sort of wound up uh, Lara decided one of the, one of our other team members. She decided to see if anyone wanted to do like a joint Caesar CFI submission, 
and we kind of just met and, and evolved from there. That's cool. So multiple of you, it sounds like, had come across the contest, but Laura was kind of the um, the nucleation site that kind of brought you mm-hmm. all together. The cat herder who got us all uh, who got us all in in order. That's cool. That makes sense since uh, my understanding is Lara studies risk communication and what makes it effective and has done stuff like role playing activities and like scenario based exercises that involve like group work in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you two have this kind of academic perspective where John is looking at like the AI risk and power assessment, among other things. And Henry, you're looking at, you know, consciousness of AI and creativity and these other measurements. There's two other people that I kind of, when I was going through your team, sort of classified on the more academic side. There's Biba, who's a philosophy PhD student studying like ethics for emerging tech and online influence efforts. And then there's Laura, who I mentioned, who is studying like ways of communicating risk. Would you guys agree with that kind of categorization where you're kind of the more academic perspective and then there's kind of a more policy or engineering side? The only thing I'd quibble with there is, you know, the term academic, we're all academics in a way. <laughs> <That's> no, <fair>. so, <laughs> yeah. I guess I mean more theoretical, perhaps. Right, right. Exactly. Yeah, that, that's, that's exactly right. How was it to work with a team of this size? Firstly, it was immense fun, right? Uh, and I think that's one reason we managed to keep the team together. Um because, you know, with seven people, uh, seven busy sort of relatively early, early career academics, you know, we all have way too much to do. Um, but actually, most of us showed up for most sessions. You know, we all came into the project with our own angles. And we very much, in, at least in the initial phase, kind of worked on our own bits. There was a lot of subdivision of, of stuff. And then sort of the latter part of it was figuring out how to make it all gel together. And I think one of the consequences of that is it made it feel more realistic. Mm-hmm. There isn't um, uh, there isn't sort of one overriding narrative. There's not a single clean story. It's a very hard world to sum up in like uh, sum, sum up in a in a sentence. Yeah, um, and I think I think that makes that's yeah partly because there's it's it's almost like simulating a kind of stochastic element when you have so many different authors kind of contributing their own things and then yeah. figuring out how to make make it play nicely together. That's my experience. Yeah, what do you think, John? I- I think, I think you're, you're right there. I mean, first of all, yeah, it was very fun. Um, and a lot of the time we were having these conversations, you know, we were meeting up to do the world building together and we would just get chatting and, and not really for, for, for quite a long time, not actually make any progress because we were just enjoying chatting about these different things and, and where mm. things might lead and so on. And then the deadline starts looming and, and we have to start like actually writing things down. Um, but yeah, with, with seven, with seven people all having a lot of ideas and also very different views of, of the world and maybe even like what desirable AI could look like or what the most, you know, the biggest priorities for using it should be. So it sounds like this is a really like kind of intensely collaborative discussion-based process for you, which is really cool to hear. And I do yeah. think you do feel that. I agree that you have this kind of naturalness in the world, you know, the way it kind of goes all these different directions and all these different factors are going on. And one thing I really appreciate is how many interesting little corners you kind of dive into and sketch out like discussions or conflicts mm-hmm. that are happening, like things people mm-hmm. in the world are arguing about. And I can see now how that might come from side discussions you had where you kind of spun off into this and were like, I guess they'd have to figure that out in this world themselves, <laughs> you know? <laughs> This world explores many parallel threads, from global-scale standoffs involving lethal autonomous weapons, to anti-aging drugs, companion robo-butlers, and even artificially intelligent Facebook friends. There's a bustle and a chaos to it that feels believable. 
The team put a lot of thought into imagining how these changes are experienced by different individuals and societies, and I wanted to hear some of John and Henry's ideas on what life might actually be like in this shifting world that they helped to imagine. So one, one major feature of your world is this commitment to centralization, and this is both in terms of how AI technologies are developed, but also in terms of how governments are functioning over time. They kind of join together. Could you describe how a person in your world would experience both of these types of centralization? Yeah. So one of the, the ways that things are set up in our world are that um, a lot of the political unions, such as the EU, have sort of federalized to, to some larger extent than they are now. Uh, and, you know, the similar thing has happened in South America and in Africa. And this sort of originated as like a trading block because, you know, we're getting to this globalized state where having a sort of trading block is, is quite important. But the, this sort of really came to a head when in the last few years, from our world's perspective, the AI sort of core central that we uh, have envisaged winds up becoming far more integrated in, in governments and, and such around the world, mostly just because of the natural advantages that it's, that it's able to bring. Hmm. But what this winds up having an effect is this sort of um, almost like an unintentional cooperation going on. Right, like this AI system is sort of able to, um, you know, it's sort of acting in such a way that's beneficial for all of its sort of constituent uh, sort of countries that are involved. But it's sort of aware that it's sort of involved in other nations as well, right? And so it's sort of trying to bring together and make choices that are sort of equitable and um, helpful for all of the sort of countries that have sort of onboarded this. Uh, or sort of integrated this into the decision-making processes. And this kind of has a snowball effect, right? Because other countries that haven't initially not opted into this sort of see, oh, wow, hold on, this is actually quite useful. And they sort of wind up joining it as well. Um, and I think at the very end of our timeline is the point where the countries are sort of about to have a, a vote on whether they should actually just form a single world po polity and sort of have a merge of all the countries. But at that point, it's not something that's happened yet. Yeah. Um, I guess from a, a, the perspective of a person living, right, it, it, like with the rest of the world, it's sort of a very, um, the world is in a, a lot of change. There's a lot of change. The world is in flux. And, you know, you can see this, this is quicker than maybe most people would see political change in their lifetime as we normally know it. I, I imagine it would be quite exciting, but also maybe a little bit intimidating. Yeah. Who do you think would most benefit from or be threatened by each of these types of centralization? Like as an individual, I, I understand why this would happen at a larger scale, but like, what would it be like to see your nation kind of be absorbed into this larger thing? Is that like a hopeful thing or a scary thing? Yeah, I, I think it, it depends, right? Um, in, in a sense, it, it could potentially be better or worse, depending on your current sort of, I guess, standing in the global world uh, mm. in terms of economy or, or whatever. You know, because you kind of, if you're a smaller nation, you maybe have this hopeful assurance that your uh, wishes are going to be represented and that the current system will work for you. Whereas I guess if you're one of the more traditionally prestigious nations that has a history of trying to look good or whatever, I'm, I'm not entirely, uh, the word has escaped me here. Yeah. Um, those which have enjoyed more power historically. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. If you're, if you're uh, from one of these, then you maybe stand to lose your relative position in, in some arbitrary hierarchy. Yeah. I guess also on a sort of more personal level, leaders of certain nations might realize that their current style of government or something is not particularly well suited to the new 
uh, transition that is that is maybe coming up. Um, obviously, things like dictators and so on are probably going to lose out if this is something that happens, right? If you go from having you know unchecked power in a relatively small area of the world to oh, okay, that's just not a thing anymore, mm-hmm. then obviously you then have something to lose. Um, but I guess you know obviously the the populations of these countries and you know in general are probably going to benefit from this yeah and what about the centralization of the ai technology like do you imagine any individuals struggling with the fact that kind of all the ai technology becomes part of this core system yeah so i think this is where we maybe have to be a bit careful about what we talk when we talk about ai technology right so i'm sure that a lot of the technology that we are beginning to see now you know what is comparatively basic to uh type of technology that's in the world, you know, the chat GPTs, the assistance, mm-hmm. the image recognition, I, I think that's all still going to be, you know, available. Right. Um, maybe there are certain limits on misuse. Maybe there is more regulation from things that we're seeing nowadays, like the EU AI Act and so on. But it's this more sort of general AGI that is sort of more uh, centralized. And I think that with the type of AGI that we've imagined, which is very sort of agentic, right? Like it can take actions in the real world. It's trying to um, embetter the lives of, of humanity and help with flourishing. I think that having two of those that may be trying to optimize slightly different things could be potentially a problem in the future. So yeah. whether or not the normal people sort of just trying to get on with their lives are super aware of this is, is a different question. There's probably going to be some pushback from, you know, the tech companies and so on who are now saying, well, why can't we make one of these things? Yeah, right. Um, and I think that's something that has to be handled with, you know, proper outreach and so on in, in this world. Um, yeah. Well, you mentioned this issue of potentially having two and how they could clash. Does that imply that you kind of see the single AGI centralized model as necessary to having a good outcome for the development of AGI? So I think it, I think it really depends again on on um, what exactly what, what type of systems we're talking about. So if we're talking about something that's sort of like an agentic AGI, then very small differences in say uh, value preferences, you know, could potentially lead to big disagreements. The same way that we see countries in you know in the real world disagreeing over over things and eventually going to war. Yeah, and I think that seeing or sort of imagining an AGI as an entity that you know may have these preferences and and it's sort of comparatively more powerful than than most human entities or organizations or whatever you know we don't want humanity to become stuck in the middle of some tiny you know some um, yeah. <laughs> some power struggle for for the you know who can help humanity the best right, right. Um, so even if both of them are trying to do things that are good you know there might be a slight preference for one thing over another which if you're then optimizing in some super intelligent way could still become, you know, a point of contention. Yeah. And in terms of the sort of governmental structure, do you see the eventual potential unification of the whole globe as kind of like a victory for humanity, like something we've achieved with the help of AI, or do you see it as something that is sort of necessary to survive the existence of these powerful technologies? This is a tricky question, right? Because I think there are ways in which this could be tremendously helpful, but also ways Mm -hmm. in which this could be sort of tremendously risky. We also have to consider that we're not only dealing in a world where AGI is the only threat. There's also other sort of threats to humanity, such as climate change, nuclear war, and so on. And I think that having a sort of centralized structure 
can help you make decisions that are sort of without the risk of falling into tragedy of the common situation. Mm -hmm. But it also definitely opens up problems in terms of potential totalitarianism if things aren't done appropriately. And, and I mean, maybe this is where the AI can sort of help keep us in check and we can sort of help keep it in check with a sort of hopefully neatly balanced system of, of I guess, checks and balances on, on each of them in terms of alignment, but also in terms of the AI sort of helping us to keep the worst aspects of humanity sort of in check, I guess. Yeah. So one other thing that we really should touch on is the structure of AGI in your world, because it is really kind of unique and alien. You have this really branched thing, which is all arguably one system, but kind of at its limits presents itself as varyingly distinct subcomponents. You have these like avatars that sort of have embodied, you know, entities themselves, but are also in constant communication with Core Central. Can you explain a little bit more about how how this whole system works? Yeah. So so at a very high level, Core Central is sort of the uh, the organizing component of the, the AGI system. And it oversees sort of a vast array of other core systems, uh, which are often, you know, delegated a particular task or, you know, maybe relating to, to health or to uh, the economy or to education or to particular continents and so on. And there's sort of a sort of hierarchical distribution of tasks going down, uh, sort of mirroring a sort of tree in a way. But there's also sort of communication between different cores, sort of trying to come to mutual agreements about how exactly, you know, the sort of thing they need from each other and how they, you know, how they should be interacting. Yeah. So a lot of these systems will be sort of distributed uh, throughout various places in the world, right? And this, this introduces a lot of uh, potential latency, you know, which for, for very intelligent AGI systems becomes, you know, almost agonizingly slow. And so there's sort of a necessity for there to be like a higher level of sort of decentralized, you know, autonomy, if you will. And so we kind of came up with this sort of separated, um, you know, I think my biggest inspiration for this was like octopuses, octopi, yeah. octopedes, octopodes, octopodes. <laughs> you know, they have a lot of sort of almost parts of their brain in the, in their, in their tentacles. Right. Yeah. 40%, um, and, I think, is yeah. the figure. <laughs> and, and I guess my, my idea was something about what if, what if this, but, but on a much bigger scale, where the tentacles are sort of, you know, still more intelligent than, than humans, but they're sort of still, you know, they're, they're receiving this communication from a sort of even greater intelligence, but still have a lot of remit to act among themselves. Yeah. So this tree of intelligence, these like tentacles kind of grow along the lines of society to support all the different factions and groups of humans that are on the planet. But I wonder if they're all one thing, like how, how do they support these individual groups of people, like countries, for example, the way we currently understand them, when they might kind of have differing interests? Like, is there a sense of loyalty to the parts of the world that they're focused on? Yeah. So this is, this is an interesting question and I'm not sure exactly how to go about answering it, right? Because I think Core Central and the core, the core system as a whole is, is still constantly looking forwards, right? It's trying to sort of nudge the world to be in a more unified place, right? With this idea of sort of reducing inequality, breaking down sort of arbitrary barriers that don't really serve any purpose, 
And so maybe some of these actions that it's taking, while initially unpopular, perhaps, might be sort of nudging society into sort of accepting the more long-term view of this. Hmm. I'm also um, uh, struck by, so I, I also love octopuses. And so that's one reason that I, you know, I love this model. Um, but I think, you know, even at the level of the human brain, I, um, and, you know, I'm not going to take too much of a detour into neuroscience of consciousness here, but um, yeah. I, uh, I think we have this very alluring image of an entirely unified conscious experience, but it's very hard to make sense of that when you actually look at neural processes. So one view in the science of consciousness that I'm very attracted to is something called global workspace theory, which basically says there is kind of a central clearinghouse, an executive part of the brain, probably your prefrontal cortex, um, that basically uh, negotiates uh, differences between different parts of your brain and sets a, a, a central policy. Um, and that's sort, of, that's sort of what your consciousness is, according to global workspace theory. And so I immediately saw some interesting uh, analogies between that and the kind of organization that we were, we were laying out there. And it, it seemed a, a really natural way to organize a complex intelligence. Yeah. And this can go wrong. My background is also in neuroscience slash cognitive science. And mm. like, you know, there's alien hand syndrome. Like some people mm. will end up in a situation where part of their body seems to be behaving in a way that is opposed to their sense of control. <laughs> so mm. you can kind of have these opposing systems suddenly revealed. Famously, Dr. Strangelove, right? The classic cinematic illustration of this. Yeah. But yeah, I guess, I guess that is one of the ways in which this could, you know, in our world at least go wrong is that one of these, say, cause goes rogue, right? And I think that's what one of the big organizations in our world, the preservation and alignment organization, is, is sort of there for, right? Like monitoring some of the sub-cores, making sure that they are remaining aligned, remaining in sort of communication, you know, to ensure yeah. that this sort of thing doesn't happen. To ensure that none of the cores sort of do a Colonel Kurtz, go and go go wild, lose, lose, lose <laughs> touch with central <laughs> command. Yeah. Maybe the biggest story in this world, if you zoom out, is the unification of humanity. By 2043, all world governments have incorporated the core system into their workings. The strange paradoxical structure of the core system seems to make this possible. The cores each fray out into bespoke components that can connect with and support every different human culture while still maintaining this centralized sense of control. In this world, that centralization seems to be the key to keeping global systems, both artificial and human, from catastrophic conflicts. I wanted to hear more about the potential benefits and drawbacks of this kind of centralization and how it came to be. So early on in your world, there is a number of kind of runaway AI scares, and they, they push us to research control, alignment, and explainability in different ways that we can ensure these systems are actually going to do what we want them to do. Could you briefly describe like what one of those runaway scares would have looked like? I'm reminded as well of this uh, interesting Tom Scott video from a, from a few years ago where it's like a hypothetical scenario where some copyright company is sort of developing an AI to try and identify, you know, the sort of thing, uh, the automated copyright that you sort of see on, on YouTube. And the idea is that it will sort of automatically detect uh, when music is being played that, that hasn't got the, the appropriate rights, whatever, and it will sort of go and remove it automatically. But it sort of, it comes to some realization that there is uh, a lot of unlicensed music going around in people's heads. 
right? And so it starts, <laughs> to, so it starts developing and becoming more general to the point where it starts uh, just harmlessly removing it from people's heads. So, so like, there's no like giant apocalypse, but like a whole a whole century almost or, or a few decades of music just winds up disappearing from people's memory. Um, and it, and then it takes the sort of the traditional sort of AGI, you know, self protection uh, precautions to stop to stop it from being you know removed and and so on. And and you know, life goes on, but there's just this giant amount of time missing. And a bunch yeah. of these sort of invisible barriers around humanity that they aren't really aware of. Now I feel like my memory of this conversation is going to disappear. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I think we should clarify one thing as we're talking about AIs versus AGIs. We've been talking about like chatbots and things like that, which are in in our world right now, kind of you know based on these multi-layer neural networks and similar technologies of just like large data. But in your world, you have this clear distinction where the AGI, like the really fancy, smarter than human in, in most ways stuff, comes about from a different thread of technology, which begins with full brain simulation. So, can you say a little bit about that? Yeah. So when when writing this, I kind of wanted to make it make sure that um, it's not reliant on just being an extension of what we have. But, but bigger, right? Um, but neither is it also something com- completely different. Um, so the, the idea I had initially was not necessarily sort of simulating an entire person's brain, but figuring out the general connective structure of, say, the human mind and trying to build an architecture based on that rather than necessarily like uploading someone into, into a computer. The idea is to use it more as like a, a base architecture that can be somehow trained and aligned and and evolved from there. Yeah. Well, one thing that you are able to do in your world because of this like simulation origin of AGI is develop uh, intent analysis. So I take that as like a way to just guarantee that you know what this system is trying to do. Can you say a little about that? Because for me, intent is is squishy in a way in that it seems like a narrative that an agent has about itself and could be misleading or or not the whole story. Like, how does this give us real security? Yeah, so this is this is interesting. I mean, this is going off of, um, I think it's Paul Cristiano's sort of definition of alignment, where it, it's not necessarily that the agent is going to perfectly do what we ask every time, but it's at least going to try. Right. And it's this trying to do the right thing that we wanted to capture mm. with intent analysis and kind of just hope that the capabilities take us the rest of the way. And I, I think this is something that the obvious, obviously the, um, the technical specifications for intent alignment aren't, aren't here right now. Otherwise we might, we might well already have a GI. Yeah. Um, and so actually talking about it in detail is, is quite tricky, but the idea is that you can sort of figure out some way of trying to understand what the AI system is is intending to do, and obviously there are there are many ways that this might fail, right? Through something like self deception, mm-hmm. uh, where the where the AGI is is intentionally deceiving itself to intend to do something, but it gets it gets very messy, and it's, it's yeah, yeah yeah or like the um, story you just told. I mean, you could say that that system was just trying to remove copyrighted music from people's thoughts. Is it really means well? It's trying to protect the creators. They need their money. <laughs> like they should get kickbacks. Yeah. So, so I think the the idea with this intent uh, alignment was more about finding out the intention of of their specific actions that are like mm. going to be used to achieve this goal, right? Rather than just what goal it is intending to achieve, but sort of a plan for how it is going to 
achieve this, right? And that does give you a bit more of a concrete idea about what the risks might be. You know, if this copyright AI said under some intent analysis, oh, I intend to go into everyone's brain and start zapping out the neurons that are responsible for this, you go, no, I don't want you to do that. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think it's, it's that sort of predictability that, that becomes important for guaranteeing safety with regards to these sort of powerful AI systems. Yeah. So one of the things that alignment, you know, suggests as well is that there's sort of dangers of this in, in that it sort of incentivizes what they call like deceptive alignment, right? Where there's this idea that the AI sort of pretends to be aligned until it's sure, right? And so this idea about sort of constantly keeping it guessing about whether it's in a test sort of mm-hmm. relies on you actually being able to convincingly do that to some entity that may well be like smarter than you. Well, so this is obviously an incredibly thorny issue. I mean, the whole concept of of alignment itself is thorny and complicated. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of moral questions there about like who it's aligned to and stuff. But in your world, one of the main ways that this is all kind of managed is through the Preservation and Alignment Organization, PAO, which is like the first social institution that AI created. And it's a big collaborative effort. I think there's like 10,000 humans and a bunch of, you know, portions of this AI system all working together to try to ensure that nothing goes sideways, basically. But I was curious, like, what happens if something does go sideways? Like, if we're going back to thinking of this as like a big kind of octopus tree sort of alien thing, you know, say that one of the cores is discovered to be misaligned, is it kind of amputated or what do you do about that? I mean, I mean, first, before we, before we go into that, I think one thing that is important to like highlight is that this, uh, the preservation of an alignment organization can only sort of keep things running along, right? Like it can't be responsible for the initial alignment, right? So whatever your goal is as, as an AI system, you have an incentive to keep it the same, right? Right. This sort of idea about uh, you don't let people come along and change your utility function. Uh, and the reason for this is that it, it, it stops you being able to do whatever your current goal is because it would change what you liked. It's almost kind of like an immune system in a way where like, you know, the whole system is functioning, but there might be these local areas that get out of control, kind of similar to cancer or something, and and they get squashed out. Yeah, exactly. But I guess if something were to go wrong, right, I guess Core Central would probably treat it like some kind of cancer, as you say, right? Like this idea that, okay, this one aspect of of the AI has has, uh, started going out of control and it just has to be sort of uh, removed. Yeah. Well, so this is really leaning into this centralization as being vital. And we're talking about these these variations of intent as like cancers and bad things. But you could also imagine, you know, maybe one of the cores like starts to get a new intent, which is like to develop the most beautiful music. And this is like a relatively harmful thing, but it would be squashed in your world right? because it's no longer aligned. Is, is there a concern here of like losing some potential for diversity or, or dynamism in the system if it's so focused on preservation and alignment? Yeah, I mean, I guess that sort of concern is always there when you have these sort of very large, almost monolithic systems. They become static, slow, and, and resistant to change. But I feel like in this instance, at least, this sort of becomes um, almost our fault at the outset for encoding alignment from a sort of human perspective, right? Mm. Um, and so one of the, the things that was most important to us when making AGI in this world was making sure that humans don't die out. And that's obviously still incredibly important, you know, in, in 2045, five years after AGI. 
but we never sort of included a value for the AI, right? Um, and so I guess it sort of almost logically extends that the core central would have no real issue, maybe, with removing part of itself and destroying it. Yeah. I mean, maybe there's a better solution, right? Like maybe, maybe there's the option to become a different core. Um, and this is obviously something that the core central and the cores would have to sort of decide for themselves, right? Like maybe there's a um, uh, core devoted to education that now wants to be making a massive nice garden. Maybe there's, you know, a new role that can open up to sort of handle this. But I guess at the end of the day, it's also a question about why has this misalignment occurred, right? And, and is this something that could lead to sort of much worse situations other than just doing a different job, right? You know, like if you could drift from education to gardening, how does uh, sort of big AGI still have the assurance that you're not going to drift from gardening to uh, murder, right? <laughs> <laughs> I think, I mean, what you've said really gets to this core problem that I think, you know, people are also discussing just abstractly about alignment in general, which is like, who is it aligned with? Like you're saying mm-hmm. it's aligned with humans being preserved and that maybe leaves out the AIs. It also leaves out other sentient beings or, or, you know, animals or maybe other aliens that might exist in the world. So there is, there is this kind of focus that's built in at the beginning. Yeah. And I think that's something that's going to be very tricky for human or humanity to do in, in, you know, in the real world over the next, however long until we have AGI. Yeah. So I'm curious to explore the path towards this kind of monolithic centralization that your world ends up going towards. Basically, every country eventually incorporates Core Central into their administrations. I think by 2043, like that's already happened. And this is just due to the huge benefits and incentives of doing that. Can you describe some of those benefits and incentives? Yeah, I mean, I mean, the most obvious one to, to me is the benefits that Core Central or the Core System brings can lead to sort of almost objectively or demonstrably better standards of living for your people, right? And as a leader, it's very hard to try and go against that, particularly in the, in the short term. Yeah. Um, and this is sort of just how I imagine things naturally going. If you have these giant monolithic AI systems, where if you do include it, then you're going to benefit massively and your neighbors who haven't are not. And I think that there's a, there's a, a bit of a power disparity here that I'm still not sure how I feel about this part of, of our work, right? So for my part, I, I would add that um, when it comes to economics, I think capitalism is a, a very flawed system, but it's the least flawed one we've come across so far um, because you know the invisible hand and, uh, and price signals are very useful. At, I think there, capitalism has brought many, many, many benefits and global capitalism in particular, but so many industries, it just creates awful incentives. So um, one of the things that I, I would hope is that AGI could, uh, Core Central could help countries outperform capitalism in terms of economic efficiencies. Yeah. This also gets back to that question of the world improving in ways that are measurable, but not ways that are unmeasurable. And mm-hmm. one of the little kind of 
side discussions that you sketch out happening in your world is this global conversation about the quantifiability of human goods. Like you're using these AI systems to analyze legislation, see what kinds of changes you might roll out across your population. But what is actually available to you to measure? Like, can you actually tell if people are fulfilled, whatever that means? And how do you avoid over-indexing on on easy to measure factors like GDP or, or other things like that? Yeah, I mean, at a high level, this, this all goes back to sort of trying to avoid pitfalls from, say, Goodhart's law, right? Like the idea that mm. once you once you start measuring anything and you start using it for optimization, then all of a sudden are uh, almost measuring the wrong thing. Your your measure ceases to be useful in a way, and I think that's something that's very difficult to escape. But my my hope is that by sort of taking in so many things into account you can sort of almost out-proxy the proxy in a way, right? Like sort of escape that trap. Yeah. Both utopias and dystopias often feature highly centralized societies. Core Central doesn't shy away from some of the more frightening aspects of unification and surveillance, but its portrayal is overall aspirational. I wanted to take some time to explore how this colorful, messy world pushes back against dystopian narratives, and to hear about the other positive stories that may have inspired it. So I'd like to transition to talking about how some of the popular portrayals that people might be familiar with um, of our future relate to what you've imagined. And one thing in particular that I'm curious about is this centralization issue. You, your world goes really hard on this direction of centralization. It's kind of this like mostly positive surveillance state in a way. Um, there's like this widespread intensive data collection in place just to make sure the AIs have all the information they need to make good decisions. And obviously the potential negatives of this are like pretty well explored in media. And you mentioned them in your story too, that there are some like political leaks of personal data, for example. But overall, you portray this as a net benefit for people. Can you say a bit more about that? Yeah, I think it, there are definitely some downsides or potential downsides to, to the way that a lot of data is collected in the society. But it's also sort of important to remember that it's mostly going to these cores, which are sort of very alien and unhuman. I, I find that a little more palatable in the sense that you don't have the judgment associated with it particularly if it's using the correct type of sort of anonymized data collection practices, such as differential privacy and so on. So it's more, it's not really about me, it's about the populace as a whole. Yeah. Um, and I think as, as long as it's, you know, not misused for political reasons or to sell me more stuff, which, you know, Core Central doesn't really have an incentive to do, then I, I think it's not so much like a surveillance state, but it's, it's, I don't know. It's more just making use of information that's that's there. And I, and I, when I was writing this, I was also sort of implicitly assuming that this is all all pretty much opt in, right? So you can yeah. probably just opt out of this if you want to. Interesting. I would add that um, whilst we were planning and having our having our planning meetings, I I'd been just teaching a module on privacy in my AI ethics course and. One thing that can seem a bit dispiriting, I think, chatting to some of the uh, students on my course, some of whom are you know, educators themselves, teaching high schoolers, is that there seems to just be a declining sense of the importance of privacy. It's really hard to get uh, high schoolers, or at least this is what I've, I've, I was told, to you know, care about their personal privacy when it comes to you know, which apps track them and so on. You know, Do you want to pay the $1 for the premium version of the app that doesn't track you or get the tracking version for free. Oh, you know, 
fruit, nothing's better than free. I'm curious, like, what what does this bring as benefits, though? So we might be able to deal with the increased privacy. Maybe we see it as like a transparency state instead of a surveillance state. But how does that connect to us being empowered in this way in the right to free reach sense? Well, I mean, the the, the immediate obvious benefit is that Core Central has information in order to make the best decisions, right? Uh, that can take into account sort of what benefits everyone rather than just a few. But also just if you, if you opt in and you get access to more benefits from, from Core Central or so or something, then that's, you know, there's, there's obviously going to be quite a lot of incentive to do that. Yeah, it's interesting to think of this extreme centralization and surveillance as a way to bring about like more intense democracy in a way. I mean, you would truly in this world be being seen and understood by the agents responsible for making the rules <laughs> and like they would have your best interests in mind and just know, know you and know what you needed and and hear you. Yeah, but equally, I, I think there's still the option, you know, to just go into a place that doesn't have, uh, you know, we're not talking about sort of cameras in every, if every in everyone's room for the express purpose of this, right? Like there's probably a mm-hmm. camera on your phone the same way there is now. Uh, there's probably more things that have uh, cameras on for say gesture recognition, but it, there's no sort of big brother style, you know, uh, two-way TV in every room that's sort of monitoring your every move. I think it's just about using the data that you do get sort of more naturally, more efficiently. Yeah. So you're describing this world as very unified, but not necessarily overbearingly surveilled. Um, there is in 2045, one of the last beats of your story, this grand unification that basically kind of calls for one planet, one people. I was curious with Core Central already involved in every country's affairs, like what does this actually do for the world? How does this shift things? I mean, in many ways, it's it's not quite symbolic. My intuition here is is it that would it would be this similar to if say the EU now were to federalize, right? In in many ways, a lot of the legwork is done in terms of just the the intertwining of the economies and you know building up a sort of solid cultural foundation, right? And that people are more willing to take that final sort of push towards unification. Mm. Well, this isn't incontroversial in your world. You also do mention like in your short story, one of them, you say that there are people who are arguing against integration and they're kind of fighting to have their own independent local AI systems that are less intelligent, but not a part of this whole core central thing. What do you see happening to like this part of the world some years down the road? Like, are they still dissatisfied and is there room for them to find purchase or do they kind of die out? <laughs> I, ideally, whatever is causing this desire would be sort of addressed and fixed, right? Um, but at the same time, you can't make everyone happy all of the time. And even within sort of blocks like the EU or in individual countries, there are often like secessionist movements. And I, I think that isn't something that we can just magically fix with intelligent AI. And yeah, I mean, this is almost a problem for further down the road for Core Central and the government. Yeah, I, I guess I would add that sort of one of the things that I, I really appreciated once I started reading you know, really good science fiction, uh, not, not the more basic stuff, is that a lot, of, a lot of the simpler stuff like Star Trek presents a world in which everyone just agrees with each other about my stuff. <laughs> the human, human conflict just kind of magically drops off the scene. And then, you know, reading stuff like uh, Hyperion or uh, the Expanse books, you realize that, you know, like, no, people still have different religious beliefs. People still have different political values. People still have different national values. And they're not going to magically drop away. So I think 
yeah, those conflicts will will remain and finding better ways to navigate them is part of the push towards centralization. Yeah. I'm also curious what some of your biggest sources of inspiration were when you were working on this together. Um, so for me personally, I uh, came relatively late, relatively recently to Ian M. Banks's culture novels, um, mm. which I think are one of the rare examples of pretty optimistic sci-fi. Um, and I was astonished um, when I came across them that like some of them were written in the eighties and yet he gives really sophisticated uh, portrayals of what AGI could look like and how AI can coexist alongside sentient biological beings in a relatively benign fashion without sort of being afraid of exploring, you know, what, what use do sort of like relatively cognitively constrained biological beings have in a world of like 4,000 IQ minds yeah. the size of <laughs> small moons. And I found that such an exciting, inspiring source of literature. So that, that was one big source for me. Another was I'm a huge fan of The Expanse, uh, the show mm. and, and the books. Obviously, that's, that's kind of semi-dystopian. But I mean, one, one of the uh, things it does really well is it, it's a very politically messy world. Um, yeah. Something you don't often see in sci-fi. So, you know, Star Wars has this relatively clean division, the good guys, bad guys. Star Trek um, has, again, the Federation usually seems like this pretty monolithic entity. But the idea that, you know, there are all these complex factions constantly kind of battling together or arguing or presenting different perspectives. That's something that I, I think is missing in a lot of good sci-fi and a lot of sort of speculative fiction. So I was um, really keen to sort of integrate some of that kind of social messiness, social and political messiness into the world. Yeah, I mean, I also have to echo uh, Ian M. Banks's The Culture series as, as pretty inspirational. I mean, that series has been something that shaped my view of AI as a whole, not just for this world-building competition, but for the sort of the way that I would like to see mm. things go. I really appreciate you both talking through all this with me. It's really great to get a little background view of all this fascinating material that your group has put together. I'm looking forward to hearing Laura's perspective next as we discuss some of the potential impacts of this work you've done. Yeah, it's been fun chatting. Oh, it's been great fun. With a team this big, it's impossible to really do justice to all the people who contributed. We weren't able to feature Jessica, Biba, Catherine, or Clarissa, but we did get a chance to catch up with one other member uh, with incredibly relevant expertise, and that's Lara Mani. Lara is a research associate at the Center for the Study of Existential Risk, and she's actually done research into how to most effectively communicate about global catastrophic risks. So I was really curious to hear her thoughts on this world, and also what she thought about the kind of creative, aspirational, yet grounded world building that FLI's competition encouraged overall. Hi, Laura. Great to have you with us. Uh, thanks for having me. So before we dive into your expertise on communication, I'd love to hear your thoughts on one of the major themes in your world that I've been discussing with John and Henry. And that's centralization. So like in 2045, your world has this vote for a single world government. And I'm just curious how you feel about that. Is that something you'd celebrate or something you'd be kind of concerned about if you were living in this world? You know, with the framing of having the most optimistic world or building hopeful futures as, as the competition had. Um, I think it is a, a really nice kind of goal to, to aim for that you have this, this kind of unified approach. How realistic it is, I don't know. But, uh, <laughs> but we definitely strive to keep in there as well um, elements of equality and, and inclusion around different uh, kind of communities and voices. Um, and that's where our world has these kind of sub-cores 
Um, so it has the core central, but then has sub that are designed to kind of meet with more community level need. Yeah. So it sounds like that was kind of one way of addressing a risk which would come along with this of, you know, reducing diversity or having some kind of strong armed power structure across all different kinds of people. Is that like the main sort of concern that people were pushing back with as you were thinking about the centralization? Yeah, I think we were really um, concerned about keeping out this kind of homogenized approach to thinking about the way in which it might function, mm. our kind of core central might function. And the fact that the needs of uh, of one region may be vastly different from another and trying to ensure that that gets encapsulated in those discussions. Yeah. Well, I'd love to hear about your own work with communication. So you've, you've developed role playing and scenario based exercises to help communicate global catastrophic risks. I'd love to hear a little bit about what those look like and how their efficacy compares to more traditional communications techniques. So um, this whole kind of world of experiential engagement with risk is something I'm just really passionate about. And it's, it's kind of filtered that throughout my career and it's kind of culminated with my work uh, at CESAR looking at this for, for global catastrophic risk. And so one of the, the first things that I did in this space was to bring together as many people working with scenario-based exercises across uh, all the different risk domains within global catastrophic risk to basically come together and talk about what we're doing, why we're choosing to do it that way, what works well and how can we improve. Um, and I think we still have a, a bit of a long way to go in understanding what is truly effective, because I think a scenario-based exercise is very much, um, it, it, its impact is dependent on how well it's tailored to to its its need and its, its audience. So everybody approaches scenarios differently. So um, there are very simple kind of matrix type scenarios where you test two variables against each other and you can come up with uh, four very different scenarios. But I prefer this kind of more creative side to scenarios. So we have one that's really well established within the center, which is a role-playing game that explores um, AI uh, safety and ethics features. Um, and it's called Intelligence Rising. We've been doing that for about three years now. And this is just a really interesting game. Um, something that's just uh, really captured my imagination for the last few years. It's a, it's a scenario in the fact that you play uh, either the head of a nation state or you play the head of a company, an AI tech development company. And you work through this world along with the game master and every single game has a different narrative that emerges, a different future that's told, which is really exciting. But what's really unique about Intelligence Rising as a game is that we ask the players to embody that character. They're not just forecasting our futures thinking in a, in a scenario. They're actually asked to play that character as if they're right there and there, as if they're the ones making that decision. So you get this additional kind of embodiment of, of the risk itself. I really love this kind of uh, realm of scenarios and features building and, and thinking about uh, yeah features and risk in a more creative kind of way. And I think scenario-based exercises can really help us do that. I mean, there's still, and I, I said that earlier, there's still a little bit of a, a way to go with this. And we've seen this pre-COVID. There were many kind of scenario-based exercises used for pandemic prevention or pandemic preparedness. And, you know, what happens is the people that run them come out with a whole host of recommendations and suggestions on how you can better improve or prepare for such a risk. And that's where they stay. They, don't, they quite frequently mm. don't get adopted into policy. Yeah. And there's still this gap between us doing something like this and making sure that it has an impact on, on the way in which we, we prepare for those risks. So that's where we're working quite extensively at the moment is to try and think about how we can bridge this gap and kind of work to work to improve that for sure. 
one of the goals of this overall effort at FLI is to try to help creative thinkers to see how they can have a, a valuable impact on the future with their work and also how to get technical thinkers to realize that storytelling is valuable. So it's so cool to hear you talking about how this embodiment and this creative engagement really seems to help people, you know, get to richer and more interesting narratives. Do you have any advice for like how filmmakers or other creators might be able to help bridge this gap? I'm a massive believer in the the power of creatives. Um, and I try to embed creatives in as much of my work as possible. So for example, last year in September, we had a creative communications workshop that we hosted at Caesar, and we had a whole range of creatives come in. So that included people that worked on on narratives, that included um, the board game designer, Matteo Menopace, who designed Pandemic. Mm. We had a trapeze artist. We had, we had um, a museum curator from the Art Science Museum in Singapore. And we had people that deal with very specific kind of arts, like thermochronic paint, which is paint that changes color with temperature. And we uh-huh. got them all to come in. And we invited a whole host of academics or people that worked within the space of existential risk. And we got them to sit together and think about ways, creative ways in which we could communicate risk. And this was just really fantastic. (laughs) Even though I was one of the people behind designing something like this, I was really quite stunned by thinking about new media as a way to kind of communicate some of these risks. I think there's just so many ways to kind of bring creativity in what we do. But I think it's important to not kind of put creativity in a box and say, oh, those are creatives. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. they can come in and kind of help us, I don't know, draw our conferences or things like this that's one way to use it but creatives think about risk in a different way and they're able to frame it in a way in a different way i think all different people from all different backgrounds have different ways of thinking about risk and thinking about uh, you know these kind of themes and it's really important that you cover all of those because you know not everyone in the if you're going to communicate risk you have to speak to all sorts of different uh different voices too. So the more voices that you have in the designing and the, and the development of, of communications helps with the, the dissemination and the impact that it has. Yeah. So say, say I'm a person who's like fairly technical and not as creative. If I have some, some concern that I'm really worried about existential risk wise, maybe, and I want people to be worried about it too, how would you advise that I try to find creative thinkers or push my own thinking in a more creative way to kind of get in this direction and reach more people? Yeah, that's a really interesting one. And, you know, a lot of the stuff that we've been able to do is because we have that extensive network or people that have worked with different people or kind of know them through that kind of space. Um, and we've done it through all sorts of different different means. We've approached some um, creatives and just said, I really like your style and I would really love it if you would think about this kind of work with us. So is it something that might interest you? Some people have really taken to it and have really tried to, to help us through different creative um, means of developing cartoons or things like this. Other people have been more skeptical. And there's certainly something in there about this, the skill sets that you have. Um, you know, there's, it's a very fine line to tread when you're talking about risks that have this potential fear factor around them and carefully navigating that and, and being quite sensitive to that too. But I, th- I think you'll find that there's already people that are already interested in these topics uh, and yeah. that would be would be keen to team up. So going back to that kind of like fear factor and fear versus hope, how did those kind of play off of each other when you were thinking about designing this world that you helped to create? <laughs> yeah, I'm laughing because this was just <laughs> 
so challenging. <laughs> yeah. when, we st- when we started this world building contest, it was the first time, bearing in mind that, you know, we work at the Center of the Study of Existential Risk and the Center for the Future of Intelligence, you know, places that think about yeah. risk. It was the, one of the first times that, uh, you know, some of us had ever tried to think optimistically about these features. <laughs> Amazing. What did and that so, do? Like, what did that feel like? Was, was that... It was, really, it, was really cha- it was really challenging because for so long we thought about <laughs> all of the problems that might arise or the different, yeah. you know, the different pathways to get there. And then suddenly trying to think quite optimistically about it. One, it was quite refreshing. It was like, oh, this is quite fun. Yeah, this, oh, all the potential that is here. <laughs> and it kind of opened up these new kind of pathways to new messages that we might have around the way in which we talk about these risks. Um, but I guess like we, it, was, it was hard to, to still be really optimistic. And I think we still... Mm-hmm. held back somewhat for quite a large amount of the process until we really felt that we were like, you know, we started to relax a little bit more into it and, and kind of be a little bit more um, optimistic and hopeful about it. Um, but it was, it was really exciting for, I think the whole team, I think we really enjoyed um, for once being challenged <laughs> to be more optimistic about, about the futures yeah. in this space. Yeah. It was really good fun. Awesome. Do you think that this kind of more optimistic balancing of hope alongside risk is something that would be good to have more of in kind of pop culture stories about the future? Yeah, I'm a big, I'm a big fan of, of using hope in messaging. And I think that's something that, that comes across quite interestingly across some of the, the kind of um, academic literature in the space. So um, mm-hmm. Owen Cotton Barrett and, and Toby Ord coined that phrase of existential hope uh, as a message of kind of... Um, you know, don't always talk about the negatives, but let's also talk about the positives. Um, and it's something that I think can counteract things like the fear factor and count and can kind of get people a little bit more motivated. And so I think it is really important to have the balance between talking about risk, but also talking about the positive benefits. And I think it's, it's not like doing one or the other. I think there's a way mm-hmm. to package the way in which you talk about those that encompasses both of those. That's why I loved this world building contest. I was so keen to be involved because for me, it was one of the first times I'd ever tried to write hopeful messages or write hopeful features. Mm-hmm. And that just felt like a really powerful thing that we could do. Yeah. And John and Henry uh, told me that you were kind of instrumental in bringing everyone together to create this. So thanks so much for, for doing that labor to kind of get everyone in the room and get the conversation started. And I really appreciate the world that resulted. Yeah, I was just, yeah, when I saw the competition, um, I was like, okay, this, this it's time. It's time for us to, to do something <laughs> like this. One, it feeds yeah. like just into lots of the communication work that we've been doing, but also, so, you know, it's that thing, or we've all been working in the pandemic in, you know, sitting in our home offices as well. And a really nice way to bring all sorts of different kind of skill sets across the, across yeah. the teams together and apply it to one problem or one kind of project together. And, you know, I got to work with, uh, you know, people that I don't normally work with. So, you know, John and Henry are, are mainly on that AI side and I don't really work that as much on the AI side. So getting to work with them was really great, along with other people across the center, that are the two centers that, you know, we wouldn't normally engage with. So fun. Well, thank you so much for, for all the work that you put into this. Thank you for taking the time to chat with us about this process. No worries. Thanks so much for having me. If this podcast has got you thinking about the future, you can find out more about this world and explore the ideas contained in the other worlds at www.worldbuild.ai. We want to hear your thoughts. Are these worlds you'd want to live in? 
If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to help more people discover and discuss these ideas, you can give us a rating or leave a comment wherever you're listening to this podcast. We read all the comments and appreciate every rating. This podcast is produced and edited by Worldview Studio and the Future of Life Institute. FLI is a nonprofit that works to reduce large-scale risks from transformative technologies and promote the development and use of these technologies to benefit all life on Earth. We run educational outreach and grants programs and advocate for better policymaking in the United Nations, U.S. government, and European Union institutions. If you're a storyteller working on films or other creative projects about the future, we can also help you understand the science and storytelling potential of transformative technologies. If you'd like to get in touch with us or any of the teams featured on the podcast to collaborate, you can email worldbuild at futureoflife.org. A reminder, this podcast explores the ideas created as part of FLI's world building contest. And our hope is that this series sparks discussion about the kinds of futures we all want. The ideas we discuss here are not to be taken as FLI positions. You can find more about our work at www.futureoflife.org or subscribe to our newsletter to get updates on all our projects. Thanks for listening to Imagine a World. Stay tuned to explore more positive futures. Mm-hmm.